0: 7654321. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy, mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundits Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and joining us today on the program is Renee Rojas. Renee is a visiting assistant professor at Hobart William Smith in the Department of Political Science. He has written a fantastic, incredible piece. I'm going to be gushing about this piece the entire episode, folks. You just get used to it. It's called The Latin American Left's Shifting Tides. It was in Catalyst Journal this past summer. It was brought to my attention by a patron whose name is slipping me right now. And, my man, I apologize for that. I cannot remember who it was precisely that recommended this piece, but whoever you are, uh, shout out to that to that guy. Uh, this is an incredible piece and I'm glad to be talking to Renee today. Thanks for joining us on
1: DPS. Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So this piece is not only important because it contextualizes one of the hottest topics uh, on the left today or just in the news cycle in general, which is the kind of Venezuelan crisis, the crisis of these pink tide governments. But I also want to hone in on the structure of the argument, the way that you produce your argument, the way that you kind of Produces comparative project and forming a kind of con- what I'm calling co- a conjunctural analysis, which is just a kind of uh, jargon-filled, dusty academic way of, of of thinking about how the kind of political economic um, trajectories and histories define and confine and you know promote and and all the rest of it, various kinds of political possibilities. And there I've done it, Renee. I've I've tried to simplify something and I ended up a lot more complex than perhaps <laughs> I even started. But uh we're gonna put some flesh on this argument throughout the course of the interview. So let's let's talk uh, let's talk about this piece. Give us some context. What is your background? You're an academic, not to sort of harp on that for too long, but give us a quick little elevator spiel about your research and where you come from and uh the kind of research that
1: grounds this project. Sure. I'm actually an academic almost by accident, um, to be honest with you. You know, I'm I'm originally from Chile. My family is. I was a baby when we moved to the States. And we, you know, we left because of what was happening politically at at the time. But, you know, I ended up in in Houston, Texas, of all places. But after I finished my undergraduate work, um, when when I graduated from college, scholarship was the last thing on my mind. I just wanted to do political work. And I, in fact, returned to Latin America uh, and I spent years um, in, in Guatemala and Mexico and in Chile just doing kind of political organizing work for the left, at different kind of left projects in, in these countries. And that kind of for a number of reasons, uh, some of them personal. I, I had a family at the time and two little babies, but also because of what was happening politically. I mean, the left was just had been historically defeated throughout um, the continent really the world and I kind of you know with my tail between my legs had to to admit defeat and return to the US and I didn't have anything else to do I had met some (laughs) some folks in academia. um, They said you could be good at this you should
0: try to read these books and actually uh, you know say something about it in a structured way.
1: Yeah well that you know well, the other thing I could have said is you're not good at anything else. You don't have any other kind of <laughs> skills. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, what I wanted to do also was, to, you know, after having tried to do left politics is get a better understanding of the context, you know, and under, under actually understand reality. So I, I said, you know, scholarship, when you remove all the, the lack of integrity and all the BS might actually help do this. And, um, so it's kind of like, you know, how Marx said, you know, uh, you know in the 11th thesis, thesis um, on Feuerbach, up to now, what is it? Um, philosophers have only interpreted the world. It's time to change the world, whatever it is. I kind of did the opposite. I was like, I had tried to change the world. It didn't work. Let me try to interpret the world.
0: Well, without going into my interpretation of that particular thesis on Feuerbach, which I think is more about the status of truth and praxis, but what have you, I think you're right about that. Is that you know I think an entire generation, or 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 uh, you know, if it wasn't so much a generation, it was sort of a time period of people who radicalized and were engaged in a lot of political action in uh, in the aughts and the early teens. You know, saw a set of setbacks and, and thought to ourselves, you know, I account myself among them for sure. I was, an, I was a, an accidental reluctant academic as well, having started out cutting my teeth in the political world and, and, and kind of run up against a wall. And you start to think to yourself, OK, we need to we need to do this differently. Right. We need to go back to the drawing board in a, in a real serious way. And it sounds like your work, uh, certainly reading this essay. This little biographical spiel doesn't surprise me at all because it seems like you're really trying to go back to the drawing board in a sense.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I should say during those those years of doing political work, there were two things that really shaped what would or or began to shape what would be my my um, my take on on politics. The one is is the way that the Chilean society had been just completely transformed not only under the dictatorship, you know, from seventy three to eighty nine, but in the twenty years that followed, you know that where democratic governments essentially didn't change almost anything policy wise. And so i you know I, I had a first hand kind of um at least I had seen directly how these underlying changes, Limited, constrained political possibilities. Because, you know, after having had the strongest labor movement or one of the strongest labor movements and this real revolutionary thrust that challenged power, it's kind of like everything was lost, you know, for the left and for, and for, for labor, for radical politics in Chile. So that was one thing that really had quite an impression, made quite an impression on me. The second thing is, you know, in my years of activism in Mexico, right? Uh, We're talking about late 80s, early, I'm sorry, late 90s, I'm not that old, late 90s, early aughts, you know, was how the Zapatista uprising in 94, it kind of, uh, you know, ideologically and programmatically reshaped what what it meant to be a leftist, right? And it seemed like some of the older, more traditional aims, right? had just been abandoned or had gotten lost in this incoherent kind of strange new set of ideas, which, you know, I also felt that we need to be able to understand we we can't just go on criticizing what's wrong with the Zapatistas and this kind of anti-state turn they've taken, this turn to civil society, whatever it was. We have to understand why it, it emerged in, in the first place. So those two kind of formative experiences, I think also not only led me back to academia in a sense, but really defined what I wanted to do once, once I did um, uh, start my PhD. So that should inform people who have read your essay and who
0: will read your essay, or if not, uh, will be listening to the next 45 to 60 minutes of this interview where we talk about your essay, where you really try to you tr- produce this comparative project. You've got this comparative project where you're trying to Assess and evaluate the structural foundations, the structural and organizational and mobilizational capacities of what you call the classical Latin American left with the pink tide. So let's start there. You know, you, you mentioned off air that you were a little reluctant to kind of uh, label and classify the earlier project as the quote classical American left, but I think it's a useful heuristic. Uh, Talk to me about that classification. How did you come about uh, that category?
1: Yeah. So obviously, when I began working on this, the most prominent feature of Latin American politics seemed to be the decline, even the defeat, um, in, in some cases, of the Pink Tide. Right? The, the Pink Tide was this kind of new wave of left reformers in office that actually came to power between ninety eight, when Chavez was elected, really he assumed office in ninety nine, and 2006, 2007, when Morales in Bolivia and Correa and Ecuador came to power. You know, that wave was being defeated as I started thinking about this. And so obviously we want to figure out, we want to get a grasp on why, why this is the case. And I thought to myself a comparative analysis would really be useful. And we can think back to prior moments of Latin American history where there were similar waves, similar challenges, right, to elites and similar attempts at enacting really meaningful reform, and the prior wave, if you will, was what happened during the sixties and seventies. So I said, okay, let me compare what's happening now to what happened then to see if we can get I can get some traction on what what are the reasons for the limitations um, and the weaknesses of the pink tide, and I thought that. One way of doing it and a very useful way of doing it would be to actually focus in on the constituencies, the political forces themselves that were driving these processes. And that's when I you know I then took the next step to say, look, when we think about social forces that are that push for these types of reforms, we can think of their ability to push through reforms on these two basic axes. Uh, on the one hand, their organizational power and mobilizational capacity stemming from their uh, levels of organization. And on the other hand, you know, the actual structural leverage they might have owing to their position in institutions that elites value. And so then I took those two dimensions and compared, right, the forces behind the movements for change in the 60s and 70s to those driving the pink tide wave of reformers. Um, And that's how I set up the the analysis.
0: So you might say there's a revisionist project underlying your revisionist aims here. You're trying to not so much revise, but resuscitate a certain spirit of that classical Latin American left, not necessarily to hold up or denigrate The Pink Tide against it to say that this was a a better or perhaps a more impoverished version, which is oftentimes the way that these two moments are compared and contrasted. Uh, But you're trying to to point to kind of more structural historical limitations. So before we do that, I want to give my audience as much context as possible. What What are some of the narratives between these two moments, between the Pink Tide and the more classical Latin American left? Uh, what are some of the narratives and how how people sort of compare and contrast those on either side? Because you you really position yourself not so much in between as though you know you were trying to ne- negotiate or navigate a third way or some other kind of uh, bullshit mealy mouthed approach. But uh, you really you what I'm suggesting is you're going to be getting it from all sides for the, for a piece like this.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, and I uh, have started. Yeah. Uh, which we, you know if you want to go into we can, but. Well, let me just start by saying more about what motivated me to – in terms of the pink tide, right? Sure, sure, Because the pink tide had been such a promising development. And, you know, you can you can go back to what was written during the aughts and, you know, about the pink tide. You know, what Chomsky said. I think there's a reference to I think I opened the article with this. Look, what, if someone like Chomsky, <laughs> right, who is the <laughs> biggest mind in the world and certainly on the left, you know, for decades now – has very, very positive, makes a very positive assessment of the pink tide, then there's probably something there. But he wasn't the only one, you know, folks like Tariq Ali were making a big deal of, of the pink tide and, and the the promise for real change right under these governments. And so there was a lot of attention, attention given given to these movements and, and these new reform governments. And again, the idea was that they promised to deliver a lot and and not only for the region, but they were also they they seem to be right a beacon almost for the left globally speaking. So what motivated me was was neither to you know um, celebrate them and continue to celebrate them in this way, nor to just pile on you know on them and criticize them quite harshly as as some sectors of the, of the more extreme left have. But it was really to just offer a more sensible, more balanced view of. You know what was behind them and and why they were so why these governments were were so limited right now some people have taken that to mean that i want i was defending the the pink tide and it wasn't that at all when when i when i write in the piece that what we need right is a, a kind of structural understanding of their limitations it wasn't to justify these limitations at all right it was to point them out to point out what was flawed in these projects from the beginning and beyond that, to say, look, this, this isn't the end of the left. This isn't the end of popular movements in Latin America. Um, we'll see new waves in the future. And we need to be equipped with an understanding of what happened to the pink tide, right, so that we don't repeat those flaws. That that was the spirit behind it, right, to, to begin with. Now, in relation to how I approached the the prior period, right? What I call the, the classical left, which again, as you said, I have, I have some misgivings about that, uh, that label, but you know, classical in terms, at least in c- compared to the, the pink tide, what I, it wasn't, it was also, it wasn't a attempt on my part to say, look, this was the way to go. A labor based left is the only way um, that we can make real gains. It was just the look at to see what was, what were the actual features involved? Right, And how did those features contribute to their accomplishments, but also, in the end, to their demise? I mean, they were crushed because of this, right? And lo and behold, one of the key distinctions, again, going back to these two analytical axes, on the one hand, organizational capacity and resources, and on the other hand, structural capacity and structural power. Well, it turns out that one of the key distinguishing features of the what I call the classical left Was that the movements that were behind them, right, were well positioned in the economy in ways that actually gave them real leverage over elites and over the state. And the reason for that was that they actually emerged out of an industrialization project, right, of the middle and and second half of the 20th century that elites themselves embarked on and initiated Right. Uh, these attempts to modernize these economies so they could catch up to the more developed societies, the industrial societies um, of the north. Right. But in doing so, in, in in pumping all these resources into an industrialization effort, what Elita ended up doing was to help create a new militant working class in Latin America. And my, you know, my historical kind of read of that situation was that. Those were the constituencies, you know, these subaltern sectors in these industrializing projects, right, were the constituencies that were driving the radical left at the time. And because of their structural leverage, because of their ability to influence elites by disrupting, right, their profits and disrupting the industries that they were fully behind, they were able to actually to make a lot of gains. Now, Those gains were achieved whether or not they actually voted their parties into power, as in Chile, right? But there are, you know, other cases like you know throughout the region where you know labor movements and social movements um, that had close connections to political parties, right, and whose close parties didn't reach power, they were still able to get these concessions from the state and from elites because of their structural positions in, in the economy, and so then I, you know. Turn back around and compare that to the pink tide, and one of the things that you know you see in, in in the current moment is that the social movements the organized sectors behind these reformed governments did not and have not in fact enjoyed that kind of structural leverage
0: right so you position yourself between uh, two poles in, in a sense and they're two false poles I'm going to be clear about that you're not trying to you know produce a sensible moderate, third-way, centrist, you know, compromise between these two real poles. I mean, these two poles are, 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 are both mythical in their own ways. But, but two, two of the dominant ways that sort of the, the legacies, the lineages that we're just now sort of extricating ourselves from when it comes to Latin America. And I want to get your take on this because this is my kind of assessment. On the one hand, you have the, quote revolutionary socialist analysis of of what happened say in Chile for example and, and in other parts of uh, you know ana- analyses of of the pink tide and the trajectories of venezuela and the chavistas and so on and this is can be best represented by and it's, I, I'm sorry to say this uh, a book that was written by colin Barker who has recently passed away and uh, no disrespect to the man or um, yeah, legacy, no, you know, but, uh, I, I referenced the book in in the essay. Yeah, right. It's co- it's called Revolutionary Rehearsals for those of you who uh, who haven't. Come
1: yeah, no, and I and I meant no, you know, right. N- I, I didn't mean to, to to demean his work at all.
0: I bet that was bad timing with him passing uh, right around the time the essay came out.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, uh, and you know, it, I was a graduate student. I, I attended one of the conferences that he organizes in Manchester, and and I made this, you know, this kind of. This was years ago, and I I, I offered this kind of criticism, um, and we got into it. It was very friendly, It was very comradely. Um, so you know, I wasn't at all in, in, intending in any way to to put down his work. Right. So we'll talk more about that. But that, that's the one aspect
0: there, which is which is I want to you know just to kind of give a it's 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 in my estimation and yours as well far too heavily it far too heavily emphasizes the, the notion of will so that if they didn't go far enough, is because they didn't have the right will. The leaders lacked the principle, and it's a, it's a very kind of what I call the sporting model of political analysis, wherein you sort of look at two teams, and one team advances the ball down the court or the field or whatever, and the other one doesn't play good enough defense or doesn't go strong enough on the offense. It's, it's very much like you're watching a football game or a basketball game. Um, it, I, I think it's very. I mean, it's useful. It's a, it's kind of a, a useful way of breaking down complex historical events for, like, say, a college audience. Which is no no wonder why these types of Marxist sects um, exist primarily on college campuses these days. It's a very ready made kind of uh, analytic catch all sort of template that you can project onto to many many world events. Which it'll get you much of the way there. But I also think it it prevent it, – it's a kind of a blinding force as well. But I'm prefiguring the argument. We'll get back to that. The other side of this I think that's dominant is like say the, the kind of social movementism that emerges from like say the Porto Alegre World Social Forum or something like that. This kind of celebration of these, these bottom-up social movements that were to sort of take us up, up and away to a socialist progressive future and they ran aground in a number of ways that were perhaps unforeseen because we were too busy celebrating their successes up to that point, rather than sort of trying to assess the traps and the pitfalls for those movements that lay ahead in a variety of ways. Um, yeah. And so those are the those are the the two received kind of um projects when we when we're talking about Latin America and the state and political organizing and social movements. Let's start with that. We'll circle back to the World Social Forum version. of
1: it. Yeah, because in, in a way, it's kind of the negative image of, 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 the, of the other view, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which we can get into, as you say. Right.
0: So let's start with that. You're, you, you mentioned the kind of revolutionary rehearsals, Colin Barker assessment, wherein you know, these, uh, say, say um, particularly in the Chilean experience, where they just lacked the will to go far enough. They just didn't have the stomach for it, Rene. That's why Chile, you know, they just (laughs) didn't have the
1: constitution. Or they didn't have the the party, the right party with the right party line. I think this is really what that book says in the chapter on Chile. There's a chapter on Iran as well Um, that, you know, makes the, the same point. What was missing is the right kind of leadership, the right party that could actually offer the right party line and guide the process to victory, right? When you use that to assess Allende, the point is, well, the problem with Allende was that he lacked the right line. He lacked the right kind of leadership, right, to guide the process to victory. You know, it it just substitutes, right, for the actual conditions. And you place all your eggs in, in, you know, the presence of a party that has the right analysis and, and adopts the right strategies, and it you know in doing so you you miss the 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 broader context. Now this isn't to say at all that leadership and strategic decision making doesn't matter, and things just happen on their own in a kind of given the conditions, things will deterministically move in, in in one direction, and you can't alter that at all. That that's not what I would say at all. What I what I think. The correction that needs to be made is that you know sure, party lines, strategies, leadership matter, but they only matter to the extent that we have understood the context in which they're operating, the real constraints that um, you know open certain opportunities and close others. That was really the the intervention I wanted to make, and so my my critique of folks who hadn't done that or, you know, analyses that hadn't done that was to say they're actually being quite voluntaristic. They're ignoring some of the basic conditions in which these organizations in which these movements are operating and through which they have to navigate to achieve their ends. So if you go back to the case, you know, the Chilean case, um, the the popular unity government under Allende from 70 to, to 73, um, the notion that you know, if Allende had just been bolder and armed the workers the way the Mede, the, the you know, this this was a, a movement to the left of Allende, largely student-based radicals, the MIR, the Movimiento Izquierda Revolucionaria, the uh, left revolutionary movement. Right? Left in ideology perhaps, not so much in class
0: uh, for me. Not but so that, much in that's class. That's another
1: question, British. right? Yeah. But, you know, I, having said that, they did achieve – a lot in the short years that they existed and they did come to have real social backing um, mass backing of course never to the point never to the extent that the communist party and the socialist party had achieved and these were the, the bulwarks of the Allende's coalition especially the communist party which had very deep and historical roots in the working class right Yeah, um, and such. Yeah, yeah in fact it, you know one of the interesting things about the Chilean labor movement was that it was an independent Marxist movement led by um, the Communist Party. But um, but going back to the the, the Mead's assessment, the Mead at the time was saying, "Look, Allende, can't you see? You're never going to be able to marshal through these reforms. Um, elites are always going to undermine you, and they're actually going to." And your government through a coup. What we need to do is be bold. We need to push further. We need to arm peasants and, and movements and be prepared for the showdown. Now, of course, when I in there resist this, um, especially in '73, when by the way, there's a, a, re, a reconfiguration of national politics between '71 um, and '73. Things have changed dramatically, and I'll go into that in a while, in terms of why that was. But so when he refuses to do so and tries his best to keep the process going without this final rupture and confrontation, you know, in hindsight, we accuse him of not having the right line. When actually what he was trying to do was to preserve decades of organizing, decades of building movements, right, and make sure they didn't succumb to the fate they actually that ended up eliminating them af- af- after the coup. So what had happened between 71 and 73 in the Chilean case just just to, this, I think, helps put me onto the bones of what we're talking about. Well, one of the things that had happened is that the opposition, the center and the far right opposition had reconverged into a unified elite opposition. Um, and I understood this very well. And given those circumstances, to push ahead for a final confrontation was beyond suicidal. Right. Um, It wasn't that he lacked the proper will um, to to move things forward. Now, perhaps if he had adopted that line in 1971 when the opposition is still divided, right, and state institutions have hadn't yet recohered into, you know, a set of anti-Iyanda apparatuses that was doing everything to bring down his own government – Perhaps in 71, something like this might have been feasible. But of course, at the time, you didn't have the level of heightened polarization and heightened agitation that you got three years later. And it was hard to to conceive of that kind of solution to the problem back then. What's the major point I'm making here? The major point here is that Allende was operating within certain conditions, certain institutional constraints, right, that didn't just give him a free hand. And that's the, the approach I think we have to take, not only to that generation of leftists, but to the pink tide as well. So I said, you know, the, the same sort of analysis must be applied to the pink tide. We can't just say, look, Chavez and the Kirchners in Argentina and Morales, they're soft, they're sellouts, they're, they don't have the right line. I mean, they're operating within real limitations. This isn't to excuse their weaknesses at all. It's just the, to point them out. And so uh, one, you know, when we then go back to assess why these governments went into retreat and why many of them ultimately failed, right? It can't just be attributed to lack of leadership, You know, lack of courage by, by the leaders. There are other things going on. And that's what I, I, I try to show in, in the article.
0: And I think you're really getting at something that I harp on and I've been harping on constantly for the two years that I've had this program thus far, which is a certain uh, – a demand for a certain agnosticism in our approach when we're producing kind of um, these you know, historical assessments. One way I've put it in a variety of formulations is to never sacrifice you know, nuance for political expediency or don't, miss, don't mix up your, your sort of political imperatives with your analytic uh, frameworks – Right, There's, I, I'm not suggesting again. You know, I can hear people sort of shouting into their smartphones as we speak. You know, uh, so, what do you mean? Uh, scholarship can't be objective. You're, you're, in, you know, you're, you're a bourgeois reformist. And I, no, I, I didn't say objective folks. Oh,
1: I got called I said, uh, positive, agnostic.
0: Actually. You got you got called positivist. Well, that's another way, that's another way of of, of this kind of uh yeah. It's, it's a, a way story.
1: in which I embrace that.
0: Right. <laughs> which is I, I I think there's a, I think that I think we really do need to fight for this this kind of distinction between this phony faux academic disinterested objective approach, you know, you see this in journalism as well. But not objective, but agnostic. Which is to suggest that our political desires, the way that we would like to see the world, do not over-determine, uh, you know, the way that we analyze uh, what actually existed and what the capacities and potentials actually were. You know, one, of the, one of the ways that people uh, sort of accuse Allende of being insufficiently revolutionary in 1971 with all of the political hindsight in place, well, they wanted him to be a revolutionary socialist in 1971. But if he was a revolutionary socialist – He never would have gotten to where he was in 1971 because the people would not have risen up and voted en masse for revolutionary socialism. They never have. You know, it strikes me as you see this everywhere. You see this in the United States. You saw this in the Greek tragedy. And yes, Syriza was insufficiently radical at the end of the day. However, the Communist Party never got more than 2% of the vote. And so, you know, had Syriza just gone the way of the Communist Party all along, well, they never would have been Syriza, would they? Have Yeah, you know, and so there, there's just a really nutty kind of revisionist way of that people mix up their political desires with with their kind of analytic framework. And, and you distinguish those two things quite adeptly throughout this essay, which is why I think it's such an important model for people to take up not only contextually for a Latin American case, but also just as a as a model that you could sort of apply elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting also about, about uh, that period, and I, I, if I remember correctly, I think this made it into the article, you know, there was a very, very long essay. It was originally even longer, so big chunks of it got cut out. But, you know, there is, I think, I think this is close to what you're saying, you know, in hindsight, retrospectively, there is a view – of those years, so let's take again um, Chile uh, and right? that tends to posit that on the one hand you had this kind of mild reform, or mild is not the right word, but somewhat timid right, it's weird it's like timid radical reform um, in a way, right, because the project the program was very radical and there was no getting around that, no one could doubt that. In terms of the tactics used however, he's he's accused of, of being too timid right and, and and not being aggressive enough, but so retrospectively people what people end up doing is counterposing that to this imagined radical left that was actually pushing from outside of his coalition like the mead now that that did exist as I said, and it had a real constituency right but what 's interesting is that the real push to radicalize came from within the labor movement itself that supported Allende. It came from the parties themselves that backed Allende. So in industry, it was communist-led unions, right, where the rank and file actually was pushing Allende from below, saying, yes, look, our power comes from the fact that we have a very strong labor movement that we have organized in the major industries. We have tons of leverage. Let's use this. So it was kind of like within the model of revolutionary change that had built the revolutionary movement and taken Ayenda to power, there were these currents pushing for more aggressive and and radical direction through more expropriations, through setting up, you know, parallel structures of power, et cetera. But it came from within the labor movement itself, not from the outside, not from a left that, again, was somehow – distant from, alien from, or counterposed to the years of organizing that ended up pushing Allende to power. Sim- a similar thing can be said of, of his own party, the Socialist Party, right? The more radical sections of the popular unity government and the movements came from within the party itself. And with all its flaws, I think it was extremely flawed, right? saw this Saw the direction in which they wanted to go as actually... Coming directly out of this long decades, you know, this decades long process of organizing and building worker power. So that's another thing that gets missed all all altogether. By the way, there's a great book on this. And back in the day, it received a lot of attention. People seem to have forgotten about it. But I would urge readers to go um, or your listeners, I should say, to go back to it. Peter Wynn's Weavers of Revolution on um, the time. It's just an excellent book and it lays out that dynamic. Again, coming from inside the labor movement that was completely loyal to Allende's kind of democratic road to socialism. But that tension certainly existed. My point is that it that tension emerged from The movement, not from these kind of alternative left forces outside of the movement. Right. Because the narrative there is this kind of Colin Barker
0: revolutionary rehearsals, revolution, quote, revolutionary socialist movement uh, interpretive lens is that they didn't listen to the people outside of the movement who were trying to get them to do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, if, yeah, if, if, right. if, if the calls coming from inside the house, <laughs> you know, uh, on the contrary, as you're suggesting, as, as this uh, excellent book, I would really encourage people to go out and check out uh, seems to suggest is that uh, there was an awareness, a desire to go beyond the kind of contradictions and impasses that they were trying to sort of in this democratic road to socialism. And, and, and they got beat. Right. Yeah. And they got. And, and, and by the way. And, 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 yeah. I, anyway. Yeah. That, I think we should that, talk about that, that as well.
1: But that push for radicalizing the process, the whole point is that it's founded in the structural leverage of the labor movement that was behind in that. You know, that's the point. It wasn't radical students um, or arts collectives or what have you, all of which existed at the time in Chile and which did play a, a role. We can't you know, we can't ignore that. We can't just. Um, dismiss it, right? But the point is that that very push to radicalize actually came from the uh, the core of that leverage that the movements behind Allende enjoyed at the time. If we fast forward to today, you know, that's I think largely what's missing from the left in in Latin America. So to even pose the question, I mean, they could pose it back then, right? Today, I think it's it's really hard to in, even envision how we might push in a more radical direction without the basic social forces, the basic constituencies that are behind whatever new left emerges. If they don't have that kind of structural leverage, I think it's going to be very hard to even make those types of demands.
0: And I think I'm just sort of foreshadowing to the B side that you and I are going to put forward for uh, in in a coming episode is is that I think this is what this this is what kind of backs people into a corner with respect to the current Venezuela situation and people sort of have to tie themselves into knots to either defend every act of the Maduro government or you know find themselves in this kind of careful tangled nuanced spirited uh, defense with a caution caution you know whatever they're they kind of start trying to thread a critical needle while also being anti-imperialist i mean it's a it's a fucking mess and part of the reason is because they really lack the capacities to do the right things that we would really feel universally good about as socialists across the board without any hesitation or reservation. And so how we got to this point of lacking capacities and having to settle for really kind of unsavory act activities sometimes in order to stave off potentially the worst consequences. And these are open questions. I'm not suggesting that's what needs to happen. I'm not suggesting we hold our nose and, you know. Uh, you know, machine gun the uh, the the ghettos, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's I'd, I'd rather us not have to make that choice, right? The trolley, the trolley problem, is not not a situation I'd like to be in, but uh, but yeah, that's how no. we got there. That's how we got there, and, and that's a little yeah, foreshadowing, I, I so. perhaps.
1: I I think it is um a kind of basic kernel of of the 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 weakness of the Bolivarian movement in in Venezuela today. Now you have to then throw on top of that. All kinds of mistakes, corruption, authoritarian kind of measures that the Maduro government has has taken, but but yeah, I, I think at, at, at its you know there there is this kernel of which is the fact that the um, the the grassroots of the movement does not have and and in some ways never really acquired that kind of capacity to to push further to push in the right direction. So in this case to get to move Venezuela out of this crisis in the right direction. The fact is that there is no way right now. This is my read of the situation. There is no good ending to the Venezuela story right now. We have to just think about what's the the least bad way to get out of this um but we can talk about about that later yeah that's a
0: little i just wanted to contextualize that for folks if if people don't have the chilean history under their belt and i certainly don't not to the respect i have the current modern day venezuela situation just to kind of contextualize and and give you some kind of sense of of where we're going with this and 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 that'll be covered in the b-side for patrons and i'll release
1: that uh for for them in in, in several days and but uh but you had also raised the the kind of nineties,
0: right? Uh the the social forumslash yeah, the World approach. social forum kind of celebration of the of the social movements that you would get uh leading up to Occupied really kind of uh, produced that spirit to that. And even you call you could go that through like ad busters and um, <laughs> that kind of more theatrical approach to, to uh, move social movementism is what other people have called it. There's nothing wrong with social movements. We absolutely desperately yeah. need social movements. The critique is at least mine. Anyway, speaking for myself, social movementism this is a very different sort of thing. Maybe walk us through that, that, uh, Porto Alegre world social forum, uh, moment, which I, which I think kind of was, uh, the exclamation point of, of that, uh, that, that,
1: uh, yeah. I, first of all, I, I think, We have to distinguish between the serious political forces and organizing efforts that were behind that. We might disagree. We might disagree with the strategy they adopted, but they are honest and serious. We have to distinguish between those and these kind of more theatrical attempts to – Garner a lot of attention without being serious on on policy, without seriously trying to to win any reforms. Yeah, I, I'm painting with a broad brush here. For yeah, sure, There's sure. No, sure. no, no, no. I want to be clear. It's it's worth reminding folks of that. Now, I think what happened is, you know, if one way to think of it is, if the conclusion to the failures of the classical left, and by failures, let's you know, we have to be clear what it was. They were actually brutally. Stomped out. I mean, they, you know there were military interventions, thousands of people would kill disappear tens of thousands, right And, and there were deliberate attempts by elites to use the state and the re- repressive institutions of the state to, to literally physically eliminate this generation of
0: Well, Renee, don't Renee, we, we put all those people in jail. Uh, <laughs> they don't wait, wait, what's that? Sorry, scrap. I'm, I'm getting a, my producers to wait what? what? One of them's a special envoy to Venezuela right now.
1: Right? Like, I'm sorry. Anyway, sorry. Oh my goodness. don't get me started on how, how, how the US state continues to recycle these, yeah. these um, genocidal criminals. But so, so, you know, if the conclusion from that is that, well, we, you know, the problem was that we didn't have the right line, we didn't know how to provide the right leadership, right? You can see how it's, you know, you're just one step removed from concluding, well, you know what? Why even try that? Why even go for state power? Um, Though it's it's a losing proposition to begin with. So let's try to actually make reforms. Let's try to improve people's lives, right? Without the aim of taking power. Let's see if we, you know, as John Holloway's famous book, you know, the title of his book uh, put it, was it "Changing the World Without Taking State Power" or something without, like that? Yeah, change the world without taking power. Yeah, without taking power, right? Let's see what we can accomplish, right? By building vibrant civil society organizations by pushing for reforms in the kind of margins, in the interstices of society, and even like lower level state institutions. So like the per- participatory budgeting schemes, right. Right? Yeah, right, in in Brazil, right? Let's not be ambitious because there might be an avenue to real reform that does not entail getting organized to, to take state power. So that's when I said earlier, it's kind of like the negative image or the mirror image of of what happened in the earlier generation. That that's what I meant. Rather than confront the problem head on, I think a lot of folks just threw their hands up in the air and said, no, that's just let's just abandon it all to, together. And you know the, the sabatistas explicitly say this. And and I and so that came to define this kind of half generation. It wasn't a full generation thankfully, but of activists and activism in, in the region. What happened, and this gets us to, to the pink tide, right? What, what happened is that during those years, and this is the years of, you know, neo, of triumphant neoliberalism in the region, right, where there seems to be no alternative, all governments are adopting uh, liberalization and open market policies, um, all governments are cutting back, you know, in just dramatically, right, social expenditures, are destroying the, the the weak safety nets that exist in the in these countries, right? W- what happens is that eventually, through sometimes through that very kind of on the ground grassroots organizing, right, um, popular sectors start to develop a new organizing capacity that was very very strong, that was very important. And then when you had these shocks, these crises in the late nineties, right, beginning of the late nineties, right so you think of argentina argentina was in a permanent state of turmoil from 95 to 2001 2002 for many reasons some of it was the kind of monetary policy where the peso was pegged to the dollar and it kind of shackled the state's ability to 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 really legislate any type of you know policies that might help people who were you know losing their jobs in in mass that were you know the poverty rate was was going through the roof etc you had that in argentina you had the water wars in bolivia and and then in 2003 the gas wars right all these upheavals where people are finally responding to the worst excesses of neoliberal policies right and and it started in Venezuela actually in the the late 80s where, with a reform package under uh, Carlos Andrés Pérez that explodes in this popular rebellion known as the Caracazo right so that happened quite early in in Venezuela but ultimately throughout this decade and a half or two decades of organizing people amassed a level of organization that hadn't been seen you know in a very long time and in response to the exclusionary effects of neoliberalism, which were really, you know, these trans just this capitalist, this hyper capitalist revolution just transformed societies and made working people's lives literally impossible. Right. These new organizations kind of explode onto the scene in the late 90s and early aughts with a magnitude, with a force that just hadn't been seen. And, you know, we need to, I think it's very important to go back to that very recent history, and and get a very good sense of how, you know, people who, and, you know, popular sectors, the working class that had seemed defeated, right, that where unemployment was just through the roof, or, inf- the, you know, the informal sector was dominant, people didn't have, you know, regular workplaces to go to, didn't have co-workers that they could organize, the people were very atomized, right, in, um, in this situation. Well, we need to go back and understand how that, Organizing process was even was even able to take place and then how mobilizing occurred with with such intensity. But the point is that it did in doing so, you know, these mobilizations brought down one neoliberal government after another until. You know the existing party systems had lost all legitimacy, had disintegrated, and these new reformers are able to win elections, and those are the the, the pink tide governments. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, I mean, that's an important corrective to my. I oftentimes, okay, look, I'm guilty. All right, you got you got me. I'm going. We're going to do a little Maoist self crit, right? We're going to head into the forest, into the jungle, and we're going <laughs> to flog myself in front of my comrades, and and uh, you know. Um, you can absolve me of my sins or not. It's up to you, you guys, I guess, out there in the audience. But uh, yeah, I I go
1: find the person with the correct line and he'll or she will absolve you.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I I often go hard on on the kind of world social forum mentality. And but you I mean, I think there's a certain kind of agnosticism that maybe I myself should apply uh, there as well, because you you mentioned that these are I mean, even the kind of John Holloway thesis. I mean, he's not he's not as crude a guy as, as, as I think a lot of people often make him out to be. He was responding to a a very serious kind of, um, kind of conjunctural shift that you just pointed to there. And so, I mean, all of these uh, developments are structural in nature. I think in hindsight, we can go back and look at those limitations. I think even in the moment, there were limitations there. For example, you know, I mean, Leo Panich tells a story about going to the world social forum and, you know, in this kind of being, Turned off by the kind of celebratory uh, ethos that kind of you know pervaded that that space, and talking about oh yes the you know the glories of participatory budgeting are going to take us up up and away to full social you know, full socialism without you know assessing any of those kind of inherent contradictions and limitations to you know localist or even national fixes to these sort of vast global political economic shifts. That oftentimes undermine them. And you see now as we speak, these pink tide governments are running aground on on these kind of vast neoliberal restructuring projects because their their fates are too linked, too far too linked to the same class forces in terms of the way they fit in the global economy as their former elites were. In, in that sense, they're running aground on the same structural forces that the elites ran aground on oftentimes in, say, the 90s. Yeah. Um, And so that's an important sort of perspective there as well. So
1: let me just say this, however, I I think that we should, in fact, be quite critical of the the positions um, that were so common back then um, that thought you could, you know, that that claimed we could change things, you know, through civil society. Um, The fact of the matter is that these new anti neoliberal movements chose a different path. They actually adopted a different strategy. They didn't just, you know, remain at the local grassroots level, developing vibrant civil society networks, you know, to self-governance, you know, these autonomous um, type projects. They didn't do that at all. What they did is that they used their, their, their growing organizational capacity to mobilize increasingly in an escalating fashion against the state. They actually targeted the state. And you can see this very clearly, this dynamic in the, you know, the three cases I mentioned earlier in Venezuela, um, Bolivia and Argentina. In, In Venezuela, you know, it happens in a somewhat odd way because the way they do it is they elect Chavez in 1998, right? So all the kind of organizing, all these grassroots formations that were being radicalized during the 90s, and that supported, for instance, his failed coup of 92, they end up voting for him when all the other party options were disintegrating. Uh, this is in 98. In in Argentina, it was the Piquedero movement, the unemployed people's uh, movement, where, whereas they had a, initially, like in the mid-90s and even prior to the mid-90s, adopted very local tactics, which were essentially – to form blockades, you know, in these provincial towns, very far removed from the capital, um, demanding relief, basic relief funds, right? By the end of the 90s and the turn of the millennium, they're actually escalating their tactics and they're starting to converge onto the capital and choke off the capital. I mean, one of the reasons that you had that succession, it was like three governments, one after the other beginning with De La Rua. Um, at the end of, of 2000, one of the reasons you had those collapses of the governments at the time was that the piquetero movement had, in fact, adopted a much more aggressive state-centered um, strategy. And you can say the same thing for you know Bolivia with the gas war and the second water war in 2005, especially, for instance, in the informal shanty or slum areas that surround the capital, La Paz. You had kind of these marginalized communities um, that organized into a coordinating body that essentially chokes off access to the capital, to the centers of power in, in these different states. So, in fact, I think what they were able to accomplish was not because they continued to pursue right, a um, avoid state power strategy, but precisely because they actually turned their energies on to and against the state.
0: Right, and I would—I mean, I would even go as far as to suggest is that that's a necessary trajectory of any movement that tries to to live outside the state in the so-called interstices. Which I've never been able to find the interstices. I don't know about you. I've looked for them. <laughs> I've looked for them every time I every every time somebody tries to name an interstice, you very quickly it's like perhaps one half degree separation from an actual state institution. But I digress anyway. Uh, but you're right to say even if you try to sort of uh, exist in the quote interstices, you find yourself running up against these contradictions and these limitations which I think necessarily lead you towards the state and and I mean I think it's not for nothing that Bolivia is one of the few remaining viable potential sort of pink tide projects because perhaps they have those sort of uh, capacities and those roots uh, in the movements um, but that's that's another story let's let's try to get through some of the historical stuff here because I really want people to go in read this essay People should, if anyone out there, have a number of listeners and even patrons who have uh, told me they're in, in charge of various reading groups and educational projects in their unions or in their, you know, DSA chapters or what have you. This essay, folks, you got re- take this essay to your reading group, whether it's a Jacobin reading group or what have you. Read it, assess it. Talk about it with your your comrades, your colleagues, and um, and see what you can't make of this structure for for your own time in your own moment. Um, because you go back to the ISIs, talk to us about that. What what was import substitute industrialization, and what did that enable for these political projects that's perhaps lacking today?
1: Yeah, I mean ISI, as as the name itself suggests, you know, it's import substitution industrialization. Right. Was a project of economic modernization that elites and states in throughout Latin America, but mostly in the in the kind of major economies of the region, became committed to following the Depression and and the Second World War. Right. With the disruptions of those kind of global events that really hurt in national economies throughout, because. You know, the, 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 they essentially lost trade opportunities for the primary goods that they used to specialize in, right? Fueling economic crises and depressions and, and, you know, in all of these countries. In response to that, elites said, look, uh, we'll probably do better if we can actually compete globally with manufactured goods, you know, uh, manufactured goods with, with higher um, end um, production. Um, so that we're not just at the mercy of kind of the vagaries of global commodity markets. And so beginning in the in the 1930s, and particularly in the 40s and 50s, there's a real, real drive for this, right? And into the 60s and 70s, um, states start to divert resources, not through market mechanisms, right? Through all kinds of interventions um, to support the Development of, of industry and industrial, entire industri- industrial complexes, right? Pretty sophisticated um, chains of production, industrial production uh, throughout the region. Um, and of course, elites were fully behind us. And the reason they were fully behind it was not just because it allowed them ostensibly to compete globally, but because it was, it was free money. It was free resources from the state. Right? And they were getting protected by the state. They were getting, you know, their credit was subsidized. They're protected from cheaper goods, and, and as far as trade goes, there's all kinds of tariffs that were set up, right, so that they could invest all this money, right, and be shielded from outside competition. So they could just do enormously well. They, you know, they had their profitability was was fabulous at, at the time. And so that, that's why elites got behind this. And this is really why elites thrived in the region um, during those decades. So that's what ISI was. The reason I point to ISI as being so central to this, you know, the story I lay out in, in my essay is that that very project of industrial modernization and development, right, setting up these manufacturing sectors, setting up these, you know, modern industries, steel for instance, machinery, right, all kinds of sectors essentially gave birth to a new working class throughout the region, right? And it's that uh, working class and the labor movement that it organizes both through unions, right, in job sites, but also growing out of that, you know, new left political parties, right? That is the, those are the driving forces, I should say, that were behind um the radical push in the, during the classical era. Mhm.
0: And that's the moment, you know, that is oftentimes this is another kind of um uh I don't know if you want to call it a a dragon that you're trying to slay. I don't know if it deserves that uh level of heaviness, but uh sure, it's one of the dragons you're trying to slay in this article, which is that oftentimes the the version of this of socialism, marxism, left politics that emerges due to those structural forces promoted by isi import substitution industrialization is is oftentimes seen in hindsight as as a, as a as a you know insufficiently woke or class reductionist kind of version of of what of of what needs to be updated today or what has been in many senses updated today by various other. Types of movements. So, in in essence, you know, uh, this is very much in your impulse here to kind of resuscitate the classical Latin American left is very much in line with some of the previous shows that I've done recently to try to talk about how actually, you know, the movements in the sixties and seventies were far more radical and far more robust. Than than these kind of revisionist narratives that emerged about them in the 90s by sort of self serving academics and and other yeah. types of uh, political entrepreneurs that are trying to denigrate those
1: moments. Well, so, yeah, no, that's a really good point, and and you see this both in mainstream scholarship, but also among uh, as you said among leftists, their analysis often of of ISI is that it actually led to and then was held together by a cross- class alliance, right of, of industrial manufacturing elites and the formal blue-collar working class, right? to the detriment and exclusion of the peasantry, the large informal sectors of the labor market, you know, we're talking at a time, uh, we're talking of a time when traditional agriculture, Largely because of ISI, right? In some ways, was being disrupted, and you just had millions of people flocking to the cities, um, ending up finding a livelihood in the informal sector, right? So one read of the of ISI is that it was this kind of exclusionary alliance, and where the rents, right, that the this industrial production could enjoy because of the protections of the state, were distributed. Um, to again, the industrial elites and their formal employees in manufacturing, and if that's the case, then you can see how what you have is a sort of kind of a uh, what's it called a aristocracy. But they refer to the workers as chauvinist
0: in a lot of ways. Well, it's the kind well of yeah. The so
1: But If this analysis is correct, then the working class is itself a sort of aristocracy. It's a labor okay. aristocracy. And its interests lie not with the rest of the working class, not with, you know, women, not with uh, indigenous people moving in from the countryside, but with industrial elites. And I think it's out of that analysis that these narratives are spun, right, that actually the left should have nothing to do with an economic modernization scheme because all it ends up doing is benefiting a tiny elite section of the working class. Again, to the exclusion of every, everyone else. And that itself feeds into this narrative that, you know, that analogous to, to what you hear a lot of, you know, in the US, that the blue collar white working class, right, is an enemy, right, of or has no interest in fighting the oppressions suffered by more marginal sections of the working class. Mm-hmm. So
0: the imports here to our current moment uh, couldn't be any more stark direct what have you so a, lo- a lot of really important stuff here well we're 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 well over an hour here uh, i could talk about this essay and it's kind of nuances uh you know for for many more hours it's a very long essay but it's also very readable i don't mean to scare people away from it it's not that heavy in terms of theory or or history catalyst you know strives to uh, as viveka said on the show uh to, you know to be uh fairly comprehensible uh, outlet and this, this essay is definitely in line with that. So people should ch- uh, pick up this essay. It's now available freely online. I'll link to it in the show notes. These essays rotate in and out of paywalls, but I'll talk to Vivek or Bascar, be whichever be it the case, if it does end up behind a paywall, because this should be out there for the masses as much as possible. With that being said, everybody I, I think, go get a I think the essay is <laughs> now is not behind a paywall I yeah think. it's no longer behind one but everyone should support catalyst everybody go out there and get get your subscription this stuff uh, might be available for free but it's not produced for free um, at least not in, not in terms of you know um, the network that it resides that's currently resides on yeah um, any, any parting words any any kind of big picture summations in terms of this piece and the way that we are currently assessing the pink tide we'll continue this conversation um, into the B side uh, yeah but uh, let's let's give uh, let's give the people a kind of a pithy summation of, of what you're trying to accomplish here.
1: oh god I was gonna launch into something that wasn't quite pithy but oh yeah uh-uh. either way I'm
0: rarely pithy so let's go let's go <laughs> not pithy
1: <laughs> well I mean, let me just say I mean leading from the last points we were discussing, right? One of the things that my analysis of the earlier period shows is that, that in fact, is a misread of the left movements rooted in labor of the 60s and 70s. In fact, the very push for more transformative policies that, you know, for more universal policies that did address other forms of oppression came from the left sectors of the working class itself, so I, I think that's something that uh, I want to make sure is is clearly stated. With respect to the pink tide, right? What this I think suggests is that in in later generations of of popular movements and, and radical movements, I think it's it's inescapable. We're going to have to find right organizing or we're going to have to, I should say, support organizing and do organizing in sectors with leverage, with structural leverage, in sectors that can continue to make demands, right, for more radical change without losing their independence, without having to rely on redistributive policies from the state um, that have their own autonomous source of, of power. Now, this isn't to say that other organized sectors that are more marginal in, a, in, a, in, in terms of leverage, in terms of their structural position, this is not at all to say that their organizing efforts, their demands don't matter. Um, they, they matter enormously, and the left should be backing all of these demands. It's more a warning to say that the our ability to make gains in those other areas will be hamstrung, inevitably, If we don't build movements in institutions that matter to elites, where we can actually exercise leverage over the interests of elites, and even in a neoliberal period like the one in which we find ourselves, where there isn't a elite project of industrial modernization, industrial development, there are pockets, right? There are sectors, there are industries um, that still remain extremely valuable. To this, to the current um, growth strategy of elites. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, ports, transportation, logistics and others where, you know, I think it's just like in the U.S. It's going to be vital um, to try to organize those sectors and bring them into an alliance with the other kind of popular sectors that are fighting for um, demands that go beyond just material issues and, and, you know, economic demands and that bring up other other forms of oppression as well yeah I think that's a really crucial point I love the fact that you said marginal
0: and then immediately as soon as that word came out of your mouth you you modified it and, and, and qualified it to, to, to or specified I should say is a better way to put it you specified that by marginal you mean marginal in terms of their structural power their place in the structural sort of power system in terms of their ability to influence large scale you know social historical processes. And yeah, that's I mean, that's, right. that's always what it's been, right? I mean this I, I think it's right. just a really silly way that we counterpose things. You say that they're marginal therefore they don't matter and then we immediately get into this kind of defensive offensive culture war style battle on that on those grounds.
1: Yeah, that's right. When we when, of course, I mean, who on the left would ever ever argue that oppressed communities and populations are marginal in terms of their human worth I mean where you know we would never ever that I mean come on that's language of the right that's not our language that's not our politics right or that the types of oppressions they raise are secondary they're marginal they're not as important that's not at all what what the argument is quite the contrary we're saying we you know, like all other forms of domination and oppression, they matter and they matter so much. That's really incumbent incumbent on us to find ways to, to have those fights effectively. That's really, you know, what, what it boils down to. I think well, there's a
0: left academic, entrepreneurial, industrial complex. I just I, I got that out on the first try. I'm proud of myself on that. <laughs> uh, but uh, but that's what it is. Right. And trying to trying to uh, produce these straw men about about what it means when, when, we, when people make structural arguments about how social change works and how we can be effective in producing a society that benefits everybody and particularly oppressed, uh, minoritarian sort of identities and, and, and groups as well. And, it, and it's a really disingenuous uh, process. But fortunately, I think we're seeing a lot of that. And you know, your essay is definitely a representation of that in your own subfield. We're seeing a lot of that dismantled. Over the past few years, because as they say, you know, the, the what the proof of the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And, and right now people are people are feasting at the table of class, struggle, social democracy, which is overturning a lot of the the uh, the what is it? The, the de ganza shista in, or sh, in, in mm-hmm. the words of Mark, the old shit, uh, the muck of the ages from the 1990s and these kind of intensely low levels of struggle in in the Anglo world, at least. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a well it's an important development and I'm, I'm really happy to see it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us about this essay. People again, read it, read it, read it, read it. Um, there's a, there's a, such a tremendous amount of richness here. The, the thing I think that people will benefit perhaps even the most from, I'll say is, is are your notes. I mean, you could uh, put, people should put together a bibliography of, of the, the writings that you recommend here. I mean, you go out of your way, not just sort of citing specific authors and works, but you actually go out of your way to say, Hey, if you want to hear more about, you know, um, El Salvador or whatever, you know, read this book. So there are a lot of really great reading recommendations here.
1: Yeah, I you know I really enjoyed writing the part on on the Central American insurgencies, and it's the section of the essay that's gotten the least commentary that that has elicited the the, the least amount of commentary. I think there's something there, and I think we have to go back to the you know the '70s and '80s in Central America and what those mass armed insurgencies were really all about, and and you know it's it's directly related to the these final points we've made. I mean, in in, in Guatemala, it it's one way to think of to think about the mass insurgency was that the Mayan population en masse entered into the armed movement, right? And 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 of course, these are movements were all about finding ways to disrupt elite interest, to disrupt the economy, to make these demands. But here, you you know, it's a classic example of how that kind of power, if you will, if you, if you interpret it that way, is you know being rooted in your capacity to disrupt elite interest, material interest, right? Um, was was leveraged completely, right, for the emancipation and the liberation of. Of the Mayan population, Um, you know. So anyway, I I hope people do also read that section.
0: I I would have I would have loved to talk about that had we had a few more hours here. The the piece (laughs) there that I like is that it's it's somewhat paradoxical, but you link you link those uh, kind of agrarian movements in in Central America with the more uh, industrial movements in South America uh, as being kind of part and parcel of the same uh, kind of uh, global economic forces and transformations, right? That one of the one of the and this is we can foreshadow this discussion more in full. I think um, for the B side when we talk about Elliot Abrams and his role in Venezuela, of course he cut his teeth in Central America, oh, and, um, and and you know I think a lot of there's some really uh, who was it that went on. Um, I forget, I always use Chapo Trap House as my metric for reach because they're, they're, I mean, yeah, hell, their episodes reach a quarter million people. So that's a lot of people who are getting this particular line on things and they brought on uh, Schwartz, uh, Sh- uh, Schwartz was his name. I'll have to go. Somebody uh, correct me. I'll, I'll go back and, and look it up. But uh, he wrote a good piece on Abrams and and talking about the what happened in, in Guatemala and El Salvador and elsewhere. He sort of produced this kind of old style plantation economy, which is not wrong. I mean, there is a there is a kind of planter elite, but but it's 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 also kind of anachronistic because part of the reason you, you mentioned in your essay is that. You know, the, These four – they were sort of um, thrown off the land and marginalized in the way that they were because there was some sort of industrial agricultural processes that were underway as well that were kind of declassing an already um, sort of underclassed population, you might say, in those areas as well. And so it, it manifests differently in the, in the agricultural sector but, but it's kind of part and parcel of the same global transformations that, that, that were undergone in, in the industrial sphere. Did I sort of encapsulate that correctly?
1: yeah I think that's that's right. so um, you know during these decades when the South American and the Mexican economy were were booming because of the industrialization effort right the Central American economies were booming because of this this export led expansion that they experienced during those years, and a lot of it did you know you're right did involve a modernization and the creation of, of new sectors and, and some diversification, right, where it wasn't just coffee anymore, right? It's cattle, um, sugar, cotton, right, with increasingly kind of uh, capitalized forms of, of, of production. Absolutely right. What's different about the Central American case is the way in which social movements then exert leverage, right? It's not just disrupting, right, production at the point, like at the plantations. It was an actual disruption of the entire Kind of society, the infrastructure—not uh, just the structures of the production, but the infrastructures of production—in terms of transportation, bridges, and all that. We have a different form of warfare. That's what I mean. Again, there's this,
0: there's this neoliberal intensification of exploitation of these agricultural workers when you have the restructuring of those sectors. And you know it was already a brutal form of labor exploitation to begin with, and it becomes even more so. And then you know you have this the revolt of the planter class, and it sort of takes a kind of militaristic uh, uh, shape in, in the you know in, in that particular context. But again, like it's all it's all sort of part of these broader global forces, which is not something that I've seen kind of brought together in, in quite the same way uh, prior to reading reading your essay. So yeah, shouldn't yeah. skip over
1: that. Well, I didn't talk about it uh, enough. But and the other reason is kind of just very practical. I felt and the editors agreed you couldn't write an essay comparing the pink tide to the prior kind of left generation without including the, the Central American revolutionary movements. It would just lead to this huge gap that would just kind of deepen the ignorance out there of, of that chapter of Latin American political history.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. People check that out. We'll continue this conversation into the B side. Rene Rojas, thanks so much for joining us on the A side today. It's been a pleasure, thanks.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, this you crazy mother